0: You're listening to The Bill Kelly Podcast.
1: Here's your host, Bill Kelly.
0: Welcome to The Bill Kelly Podcast. Critical discussions on critical topics and critical times for that matter, too. So glad that you're with us today. Uh, Today, uh, this is kind of a twofold thing. I want to talk about government accountability, which is something that we've, uh, I think, almost made a habit of now, or maybe a lack of government accountability, Uh, but it's to do with a specific report. Uh, There's a great deal of concern about some of the policies of the Ford government here in Ontario over the last little while uh, when it comes to the Green Belt, and I'm sure we're going to get into that in just a couple of seconds, uh, but the impact that it's going to have on the environment. Uh, We've talked about that with the uh, proposed construction of uh, major highways here in the province of Ontario and bypasses, uh, whichever one they want to call the the Bradford, of course, which is going to be right on the lip of uh, Holland Marsh, which is one of the most productive and most beautiful agricultural areas if uh, in the world, if not just in Canada. But there's also uh, the, the experts that are weighing in on this. And there was a report that was done for this government uh, that uh, we just now have uh, laid eyes on. It was done some time ago and sat in the bottom drawer of somebody's desk at Queen's Park for the longest time until our guest came across, across this when it was finally released uh, late one day. We'll talk about that process in just a second. Uh, our guest is Jonathan Shear, who is uh, an investigative reporter, two-time finalist for the Michener Award for Public Service Journalism, and a winner or finalist for more than two dozen National and Ontario Journalism Awards. He's worked in the past for the London Free Press, uh, Sun Media, Post Media, CBC's Fifth Estate. You can follow his work, by the way, at uh, twitter.com, Sure on Health. Uh, Jonathan, a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks for joining us today.
1: Bill, thanks so much for having me.
0: You and I were talking just before we we started uh, rolling here about uh, government uh, processes and government policies when it comes to this, and I I think it's for the years you've been following uh, politics, as I have, and and covering it, uh, there's a couple of tricks of the trade that governments often use. Uh, If the news is bad in any report or if news is going to be controversial, uh, first of all, they, they don't like to release these sorts of things, but even if they have to, uh invariably it's late in the day on friday or during a long weekend or something like this so they can say that it was out there but nobody pays much attention to it uh and that's one thing but this this is a report that was done months ago and uh, you just laid eyes on it uh, toward the end of the summer didn't you
1: yes yes i i saw it for the first time earlier this month
0: so and it had been released earlier this year then
1: it was uh completed and published in january of this year at the start of the year After about two and a half years of work, uh, it was not um, put up on a public website by the government uh, until September uh, earlier this month, Uh, when they did finally put it uh, on a public website, the government did not issue any sort of media release. So if you go to look at government media releases to this day, Mm -hmm. there's no announcement that this report was released.
0: Did they commission it? Was it the Ford government that actually commissioned this?
1: Yes. The, the government commissioned it. The Ford government commissioned it in uh, 2020. Um, the, its Ministry of Environment played a lead role in um, overseeing the work that was to be done. They hired some out, consul- outside experts to, to do the work, but mm-hmm. the Environment Ministry oversaw it. And uh, about uh, 18, 19 government ministries uh, were involved to some degree in providing information used for the report
0: uh the report by the way is called the provincial climate change impact assessment Uh, and uh well it's 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 probably scarier than reading a stephen king novel i mean there's some pretty pretty gruesome projections here as to what's going to happen isn't there
1: yeah absolutely um you know i'm here in southwest uh ontario um one of the uh concerning projections is that by the end of this century, in across southern Ontario, so southwest, uh, central, uh, uh, south, and eastern Ontario, uh, instead of getting uh, an, a- an average of nine days where temperatures soar above 30 degrees Celsius, we will see 60 such days each year, um, according to uh, projections. And of course, that will have all sorts of impact on health, uh, on agriculture, um, and um, you know the time to act, uh, if it wasn't yesterday, is certainly now. Uh, and that raises the question as to why uh, this government did not disclose this report when it was completed in January.
0: And let's put this in context. As, as you mentioned, the report goes and looks at some of the impacts in some of the various aspects of our lives that we probably just take for granted. I mean, this is not simply stating that, yeah, it's going to get warmer over the next 50 or 60 years, so just crank up the air conditioning. There are some severe impacts that this is going to have, and, uh, and it's not just on temperature. But I mean, it's, it's well, let's talk about the agricultural aspect. Uh, food supply right now, we, that's a concern. Grocery prices are skyrocketing. Uh, talk to us about the worst case scenario and what that's going to do to Ontario's agricultural industry.
1: Well, uh, it's going if, to, if to the extent that uh, the projections, which are the best that they have available at the time that they did the report, to the extent that those are correct, it's going to create uncertainty uh, for agriculture, which is kind of the enemy of, of, of what they want. Um, it's going to uh, lead to um, overall growing conditions. Uh, that are going to be difficult uh, for farmers to cope with. Um, and uh, in a province that is very concerned about affordability of food, um, uh, that suggests that things are going to get worse, not better.
0: And the quality of the food itself. I mean, you know, we, we all know, I guess we've heard anecdotally, I mean, for, for people, for instance, down in the Niagara area, uh you know if they have too much rain not enough rain well there goes the wine crop this year uh or whatever else they're going to be producing jellies anything when it comes to things like tender fruit but this is according to the report here going to have an impact on just about every aspect of it uh you know you grow corn this you know this is the time of year we love to go out and get a cob of corn uh you may not see as much of it it's going to be shrinking and there's there's a number of different impacts that are going to be happening if in fact uh these projections are correct
1: yeah, so it's it's. I mean, a, a lot of. Um, well, we have the farm belt across uh, across uh, southern Ontario, mm-hmm. um, uh, not just only to feed our our province, but to feed other Canadians too, um, uh, for for export as well. And um, there is going to be uh, a severe effect on really almost every type of farming, uh, from livestock uh, to um uh core uh uh, products like soy and corn uh and wheat uh to vegetables that we consume um and you know again now is the time to start to take action uh to try to uh mitigate uh problems that are already starting to take place and to avoid uh the situating the situation getting Uh, excessively worse over time Um, and and this is going to impact every region across the province. Uh, In in the south we're concerned especially about uh, heat, we're we're concerned about um, uh, rainfall in the winter and early spring that's going to uh, be linked to more flooding. Um, uh, In the north uh, 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 they're going to be concerned about uh, the loss of, of winter uh, uh, days, um, uh, which affects um, their quality of life, too, in a significant way. Because the further north you are, the further away from the equator, generally, the greater change in temperature we expect to see as our climate warms.
0: And these things are, as you say, linked so much. And oftentimes, you know, we take this stuff for granted. Uh, I remember a couple of years ago, I mean, we didn't have much snowfall in southern Ontario for whatever the reason may well have been, because uh, there's still some climate deniers that said it had nothing to do with the fact that the earth is warming, be that as it might. Uh and, of course, if there's no snow on the hills, uh, there's no flow, of course, uh, downhill in springtime. And that had an impact on crops, which had an impact on agriculture, which had an impact on on produce prices. So it's it's all tied together. We may just look at that as something in isolation. But there's a snowball effect, excuse the bad metaphor here, uh, for just about all of this stuff, isn't there?
1: Yeah, it's, it, it's all tied together. And, and, and the way I look at it is... Um, In terms of agriculture, really, there's two large threats. One one are the warming temperatures that will make um, areas that have been uh, productive uh, for certain types of crops and livestock less productive. The other is just the unpredictability, because as our climate warms, that can trigger all sorts of secondary reactions. You you, you mentioned a good example, kind of the loss of, of snow cover. Um, and um, uncertainty is is the enemy Mm -hmm. of of farmers, right? There's always some risk involved in farming, Um, even in the centuries, of course, before uh, climate change and before industrialization, there was always a a risk of uncertainty uh, in farming. But to the degree that uncertainty increases, it makes it much more difficult Uh, for the agricultural sector and the farmers who depend upon it and the consumers who depend upon that production uh, to rely upon it in a consistent, predictable way.
0: And the report also talks about not just the the crops themselves, or hey, they're not getting enough rain or they're getting too much rain, uh, but this uh, to the extent of even the, the quality of the soil. I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, for instance, about the Holland Marsh, I think a lot of our uh, Ontario residents would recognize that as one of the most beautiful drives. You're going up Highway 400 no, t- towards Barrie and up into the uh, cottage country. Uh, and right by Highway 9, is the Holland Marsh. And in, as far as you can see in either direction, this beautiful black, loamy soil and some of the the greatest agricultural production that you can see anywhere. Imagine that now is all dusty with basically contaminated food it It all ties in once again too the, the 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 climate itself and the temperature has an impact on this i mean we 're learning more about agriculture, I think than probably ever most of us ever thought we were going to, but we kind of have to these days because of what's happening to the planet don 't we
1: We do um, and, and it kind of reminds me of of an earlier era. Uh, the, the what was known as the Dust Bowl mm-hmm. um, in the United States uh, uh, during the earlier 20th century, where what had been prime agricultural lands uh, uh, were no longer so. In part because of farming practices themselves, they had, uh, had taken topsoil off over the years without replenishing it, uh, so that when they entered a period of, of, of uh, drought and, and, and dry times. What little topsoil was left blew off, um, and 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 generations of farmers uh, literally packed it in, and uh, across the country to California in in, in search of uh, fertile ground. Uh, that's the sort of disruption uh, that global climate change threatens in the twenty first century, uh, and uh- certainly the example you gave is is, is an area. Uh, that uh, uh, is projected to be affected by those changes.
0: Uh, just read The Grapes of Wrath by John Steinbeck, and that pretty much, I think, outlines exactly what you were talking about back in the 1930s. Uh, the, the subsets of, of what this report covers, we've talked about agriculture, uh, but infrastructure, people and communities, uh, uh, environmental business and the economy, Uh, we've talked about agribusiness and, and the impact that that's going to have on the economy. Uh, just about every aspect of our lives is going to be impacted, uh, by, by climate and by changes in climate over the next little while. I, I guess which begs the, the obvious question here, Jonathan. Uh, why did they sit on this thing for so long? I mean, was, was it the fact that as the time that should have released this, uh, forest fires were raging all over the place, floods were happening in the springtime here in Ontario? Uh, I, I guess they didn't want us to connect the dots about well, look what's happening to our province. And uh, maybe this is why, because the the government, not just this government, past governments too, have not paid much attention to this.
1: Well, it's an important question uh, in follow-up to what I reported. Uh, mm-hmm. Mike Crawley of CBC asked that question to the environment minister, uh, who uh, whose office replied that he was too busy uh, to uh, be interviewed last week, and his office did not answer the question. At all as to why they sat on the report from January to September. Uh, certainly, opposition uh, parties are asking that question uh, now, uh, and I'm sure uh, my colleagues in the media will continue to ask questions. It may take it may take some time. I mean, somewhere often there's a paper trail mm-hmm. uh, within government uh, about who did what and why. Uh, but that paper trail often takes time to uncover. They Obviously, they, it's not something that it's in the government interest to release. Uh, 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 if I was a, a, a journalist uh, working for a publication seeking that information, now's the time to file what's called an access to information request and try to find the trail of decisions by whom that led to this report essentially being hidden uh, for public view for most of this year.
0: Well, and I guess the best example of that is, uh, as we recently discovered, uh, the mandate letters that Doug Ford sent to all his cabinet men, uh, Now that's going back six years now. Yes. And and some of that is just now starting to come to light. And I want to talk to you about those, too, because I'm sure that factored into this decision here, because uh, one of the letters, the mandate letters, and, and by the way, for those that may not be familiar with the term, maybe explain that this is what the premier sets. Uh, congratulations, Jonathan, you're uh, my industry minister. Here's what I want you to do. In other words, this is the game plan for you uh, and for just about every one of those portfolios. And it's, it's pretty important. And it, it speaks a lot, I guess, to the government's intentions, doesn't it?
1: It does, especially when the mandate comes after uh, the incoming government is replacing a different political party Mm -hmm. that's been in power. Because uh, when Ford was elected, uh, he was elected uh, as any incoming government that is a different party, tends to be, to bring about change from the previous governments. And so it's critically important for citizens to be informed about what to expect, and not just through press releases, but through the actual uh, uh, things that government officials say to each other, and especially what the premier expects of his ministers, that's what are in those mandate letters. Uh, And the fact that uh, uh, the media has been fighting for those letters through the courts uh, uh, since Mike Harris uh, uh, became premier, Uh, That alone, of course, is very concerning. Now we're seeing those documents for the first time because they've been leaked uh, 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 to some members of the media and then shared uh, uh, with citizens. Um, But I think across most political stripes, whether it's in Canada or another country, people want authenticity from their leaders. They want to be able to believe what their leaders say and when instead leaders uh, hide a uh, uh, key uh, 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 direction uh, about how they are going to govern from citizens, uh, it creates the sense that they're being the opposite of authentic, that they're trying to hide something. Um, and uh, I, I think that is going to be a, a, a significant issue that, uh ford and his government is going to have to uh face at this point
0: well because one of the buzzwords in every election whether it's provincial municipal federal whatever the case might be is transparency you know the people that are in office right now the incumbent uh you know they hide everything and, and there was an argument to be made for that was some of the things that that the previous uh, provincial government had done here but ford promised that you know transparency accountability right those are buzzwords in in elections and when you look at, for instance, the mandate letter that the environment minister, I think it was Rod Phillips initially, a number of people have had that job over the last little while, uh, it essentially said, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, environment, sure, but stay the hell away from the developments that we're going to do. And basically, we've seen that happen. I mean, if we'd known that letter, existed at the beginning of of that first term, maybe we would have seen some of this stuff coming like getting you know basically uh, taking all the powers away from conservation authorities essentially uh, stripping uh, municipal governments of their power to be able to plan how their communities are going to grow uh now we know why they're doing this because that seemed to be Ford's intention right from day one. Uh, it, let's you know open up the Greenbelt. He denied he was going to do that thirty odd times, but this letter said they were going to do it. it it's it's insightful that we're getting it now. Uh, it's tragic that that seems to be the path that they're taking.
1: Yeah, and and I, I, there's a political price that they're they're paying for it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that uh, for the first time since Ford's first year in office, which was a rocky year his first year in office. Um, I think uh, uh, you can even see in his face and his voice, a level of concern about um, his own viability uh, that we haven't seen for quite some time. We saw that with the Greenbelt, right? With the Greenbelt alone, we saw that. Uh, Because again, his brand, like many politicians, is you may not always like what I have to say, You might sometimes disagree with me, but I'm a straight shooter, and I'm going to tell you what I think, and you can at least count on that. When instead we see now a pattern of him taking actions uh, uh, that are directly the opposite of being authentic, whether it is fighting to hide mandate letters or burying this key climate change report. From January to September, it undermines that whole core of his argument um, and uh, whether or not that's enough to uh, motivate him to change uh, in areas that are helpful, it's kind of too early to say, um, but um, he's, in a, he's in a political storm right now uh, that he hasn't been in for quite some time. Um, and, uh, on the one hand, um, it's good in the sense that things that should have come to light earlier, or at least they've come to light now. That's why there's a political storm, but you're absolutely right. This should have been apparent to citizens from the get go. Right. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's human nature to, to, to have suspicions about someone's earnestness, their authenticity, whether they really mean what they say, if they withhold key information from you, right? And, and, that, and that's, we've, that's this happened. Ahead.
0: And again, this goes back to the mandate letters. Uh, and I understand the governments don't want to be embarrassed, especially in the public. But for instance, I mean, you know, we went through the long-term care crisis, uh, which is not, you know, strictly the fault of this government. This has been going on for years and years. Uh, But then, of course, it was exacerbated by COVID, like so many other things that are going on. Uh, I talked to the premier about that, one of the few interviews he he gave me, uh, about the the concerns that were going on. But we didn't know, for instance, uh, we already do know, that, of course, the majority of long-term care facilities are privately run. They're not publicly run. Uh, But an awful lot of the people on the boards of directors of all those private facilities are either major campaign donors or former conservative members of, of the provincial parliament. Uh, and they got a sweetheart deal. I mean, there were virtually no inve- investigations, uh, nothing going on in the way of dealing with some of the concerns in these facilities. They get a pass on it. and Now we're seeing the same thing happen with the environment portfolio. Uh, they're aware of this, but I mean, the premier, we're told now, uh, isn't a big believer in climate change and, and some of these things that are going on. And that ha- clearly is having an impact on the policies of this government.
1: Yes, it, it, it is. And you're, you're right that it extends well beyond the environment. Uh, long-term care is a good example. Hospitals is another. Yeah, right. And, and healthcare more broadly, we're, we're, we're you know we're we're hearing dire messaging from the people who are actually on the front lines. We're hearing it from patients. We're hearing it from nurses. We're hearing it from doctors. Uh, we're hearing hearing it from advocates. Uh, and at the same time, we're hearing the Ford government saying that you know things are moving in the right direction. That's not the experience of anyone who tries to wait in one of Ontario's emergency rooms if the emergency room is open. Where I am in in London, Ontario, in this region, it's quite typical for the rural emergency rooms to be closed uh, 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 at at times during the week. Uh, So people actually have to go online to check uh, which emergency rooms happen to be open Uh, if, 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 if something happens on a weekend or on an evening. That's not the way our system should be working. And while we see that problem in emergency rooms, uh, most dramatically, it also, it's kind of the canary in the coal mine of of healthcare. Uh, Mm -hmm. People are turning to emergency rooms because they're not getting the help they need in the community. They don't have family doctors. Um, And in turn, uh, hospitals get backlogged with patients because they don't have enough staff To care for the patients they do have. And when the patient doesn't need hospital care, there's not a safe place to put them back in the community because there's not a space in a long-term care facility. There's not available home care uh, to take care, care of them. The whole system is a mess. Well,
0: and I know you covered this extensively, uh, the healthcare aspect of it as well. And I saw one of your tweets from a while ago with it, it was actually a quote from uh, Dr. Kieran Moore. There's the chief medical officer of health in the province, uh, making this bold statement that, uh, yes, we've got some problems, but people get the care that they need. Uh, and I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of Ontarians just would be gobsmacked when they saw that. What do you mean? You know, the, the lineups at emergency and, and so if, if it's even open. Uh, the yes. lineups or the level of care. I mean, this is a crisis situation, and the government seems to want to downplay it, just as they are with these environmental issues right now. It's, it's, it's the attitude seems to be nothing to see here, folks. Move on. Uh, and the people that are on the front lines and the people that need those services, in this case, uh, you know, we're talking about food and, and whether it's that or healthcare, care, uh, they know th- that it's a different story. And it's it's got to be frustrating uh, when there's that disconnect. I mean, the government are not stupid people. They seem to understand this. They just seem to want to deflect everything.
1: Yes, they want to deflect things. And they also, the the other thread is that as they deflect things, they are taking steps that seem to disproportionately benefit a very small group of people who are usually have one thing in common, and that's wealth. There there are CEOs of, of certain hospitals who are getting funding to expand their physical space, There are certain developers who are given land in the green belt uh, 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 to develop. So so not only is the government not squarely addressing these crises, uh, but the steps they are taking seem to be uh, disproportionately benefiting a few people at the top. And that uh, grates, I think, on everyday folks in Ontario, too.
0: Well, and I guess it goes back to that uh, phrase of all investigative journalists such as yourself is follow the money. Uh, that really does seem to be at the root of it, isn't it? Whether it's, uh, as you say, the Greenbelt and a, a handful of uh, developers, uh, whether it's long term care facilities where the majority of the facilities that seem to be egregious with their their, their poor care uh, are, are basically private sector folks, very closely tied to the Progressive Conservative Party. Follow the money. And you seem to you get some answers when you do that, don't you?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And then um, on the other, the flip side of the coin, in terms of following the money, um, you mentioned infrastructure and climate mm-hmm. change, right? Um, and the way that, one of the ways, many ways that climate change affects infrastructure is as we have more extreme weather events, particularly rains and, and floods, um, our sewer systems, especially in our cities, are not capable of of um, dealing with all that stormwater. And then cities end up having to bypass waste treatment plants and dump that sewage with minimal to no treatment in our rivers and in our lakes, which causes a problem. And the only way to fix those things is by spending a lot of money to create uh, uh, separate sewer lines uh, that can handle this massive capacity and who pays for that? It's, it's, it's property taxpayers. Yep. Right. So so so, um, inaction dealing with climate is going to cause our property tax bills, especially when it comes to infrastructure, to go up over time. Um, and, and we've known about this problem for a while. It, 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 it's, it's something that uh, people who, who work on that intersection between climate change and infrastructure. Have been warning about for 20 years. Mm-hmm. But the warnings become more dire as we see these extreme events happening more often. And as we get further out into the time period where we're seeing these warming te- temperatures continue. Um, and so, um, yeah, it's, it, it, it's, it's very concerning. And for the province to tackle these type of issues, particularly infrastructure, they're going to have to cooperate with other levels of government. But you can't cooperate if you don't share the information you already have. Exactly. Right. You, you, need, you need to be able to share. But if we have a problem that we both face together, the best way to approach it is for us to put all our cards on the table and then try to work collaboratively to address it. If one side is hiding their cards, it creates an obstacle. And that's what's happening when a climate report like this stays buried for nine months.
0: Jonathan, I, I, I'm so glad you could join us today. And I, I'm a big fan of the work that you and so many other great investigative reporters do. Uh, so uh, just a final topic, I because I want to get your read on uh, what's happening to your industry, our industry these days. Uh, just, just this past weekend, uh, the, the uh, community newspapers, uh, many, many communities here in Ontario just found out that their uh, community newspapers are no more. They've all of a sudden been fired everybody's gone. Uh, This is a classic example of what you've been studying here for the last little while of the need for journalism and for investigative reporting. Uh, But the way things are starting to evolve right now, the lack of support that journalism seems to be getting, uh, this information is not going to be forthcoming. And and I know that the the kind of work that you do and other great investigative reporters are doing in this, it's not to embarrass the government, It's, it's to inform us. Uh, because invariably, no matter what kind of crap is coming down, it's, it falls on us and, and we need to know about this. Uh your your thoughts on the, this career that you've chosen and, and and the way it seems to be going sideways all of a sudden, uh simply because of the way the things are evolved and, and governments are the ones that seem to be uh calling the shots as to what's gonna happen here.
1: Yeah, well it first of all it's tragic, uh the loss the sudden loss of jobs for for hundreds of people uh uh that have been employed through Metroland associated with the Toronto star. Uh, not only are they suddenly about jobs, but the company is bankrupt. So they're not even getting severance, uh, out the door. Uh, uh they're going to have to try to fight for some small piece of the severance that they would otherwise be entitled to. So, mm-hmm. so, um, uh, I feel for those people, uh, because that, that is a big blow, um, in terms of the communities that they served, They those those smaller communities across Ontario and across Canada have been losing coverage for the past 30 years over time because Mm -hmm. of the change in technology where digital replaced print and uh, uh, digital uh, has not the revenue that media derives from digital is far less than what they could derive from traditional forms of media. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so when I started working in London, which was in 1997, uh, we had four bureaus in our region, staff of reporters covering each region of Southwestern Ontario. Um, and uh, uh, in addition to having maybe 70 or so journalists in the city of London covering our city, uh, those bureaus were eventually eliminated completely over time. Um, and even these weekly papers that are now just eliminated now, those were oftentimes just one person operations. So what used to be a bureau with four or five, six people that really investigated city, local city halls, uh, boards of education, uh, police, social services, um, healthcare, uh, was reduced over time to a single reporter who probably didn't have much more time than to report on press releases from police and from, from healthcare, et cetera. Um, so, uh, these communities have been starved for independent oversight, uh, for years. And, and 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 essentially, what was announced this this past week, it was the last meal.
0: Yeah, and it
1: wasn't it wasn't a big meal to, to, to be provided because, you know, as hard as those community reporters had to work, if 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 one person is doing the work of what used to be done by ten people, the 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 scale of what they can do is less. So, it's it's tragic for those journalists. It's tragic for those communities, um, and it's bad for good governance. Because we need people outside of government uh, to hold those in power to account, uh, whoever the the party in power is, or if it's a missile government where it isn't party politics per se, uh, to hold in account the people in City Hall. Um, and, And I know from experience, good reporters do that. Yeah. But over time, we're seeing less and less of that um and um when the challenges we face as a society grow as our capacity to oversee how we respond to those challenges shrinks it's a terrible combination
0: well you know we always talk about informed voters how can you be informed Uh, if you're letting the government or the whatever uh, agency it is control the message? Uh, I'm not necessarily saying it's always the bad thing, but it's not the best possible scenario uh, to get the truth out there. And uh, we appreciate the great work that you have done on this and so many other issues. And uh, here's hoping that there will be better days ahead of this. Uh, Jonathan, great to have you on here. Thank you so much. Uh, You can follow him, by the way, at uh, Twitter.com, Sure on Health. And uh, always a pleasure. I look forward to further discussions about this. Have a good day today, John.
1: You too, Bill. Thanks so much. It's great to see you.
0: Take care. Uh, and that's it. A tight show today, so much going on in so many different facets. but uh, to, to bring folks like Jonathan onto the program to get some perspective, the perspective that you should have, uh, it's always a pleasure. And uh, we'll do this uh, on a continual basis. It's a Bill Kelly podcast. Critical discussions about critical matters in a critical time. of course. we'll see you next time. Take care. This podcast was brought to you by Rebecca Wizens and her team at Wizens Law. Rebecca Wisons is a 20-time winner of the Hamilton Reader's Choice Awards for their exceptional client care and legal practice specializing in personal injury, car accidents, accidental falls, and Wilson Estates. Now, if you or a loved one have been seriously injured or if you want to make sure that your family is taken care of for the future with the will and powers of attorney, call Rebecca Wizens 905-522-1102 for a free consultation. When life happens, you can rely on Rebecca Wizens and Wizens Law. And trust me, Rebecca is my wife, and I don't know what I'd do without her. That's Wizen's Law, 905-522-1102 for a free consultation. Subscribe to my Substack for timely news updates and commentary straight to your inbox. Let's keep the conversation going. I'd love to hear your thoughts on today's episode. Let me know what you think we should be talking about next by contacting me through my website at www.billkelly.co. Thanks for tuning in. This is Bill Kelly. Till next time, you take care.